Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Astrologer by Dick Donovan. The Black Forest is rich in story and tradition of a weird and thrilling kind, but nothing can excel in ghastly horror that which is told of the sole heir of the once illustrious family of D. Venoni. For generations, this family had held tyrannical sway over the district. Their power was tremendous. Their word was law. They ruled with a hand of iron, and the peasants were their slaves. They were exceedingly wealthy. Their men were said to be brave, their women beautiful. But, as seems to be the fate of all powerful families, sooner or later, they began to decay. The fatuous habit of intermarrying produced the usual result, and the curse of insanity fell upon them. Many were the tragedies that this led to, and the time came at last when there was but one sole remaining male representative. This was a youth, handsome and well-proportioned, but of eccentric habits and occasionally displaying those fatal signs which were only too well known. Nevertheless, it was believed that Reginald de Venoni would might escape the curse. The best medical advice was sought, and the opinion was that the chances were strongly in his favor, and he would escape. Reginald was brought up under the care of his mother, who had been left a widow for some years. She was a haughty, austere, proud, and disdainful lady, who guarded her son with a peculiar jealousy. For on him, as she knew, depended the existence of her house. If he failed, then indeed the power of the Divanoni would be gone, and the family would crumble to decay. The lady and her son lived in a large castle, which for generations had been the Divanoni's stronghold, and withstood and repelled many a determined attack. It was a gloomy pile, distinguished for its strength rather than its beauty although internally much had been done for the comfort of the occupants. The castle was situated in Subia, just on the borders of the forest. It stood on elevated ground, and anyone standing on the turrets commanded an immense panorama of great beauty. As some little distance rose the ruins of the once powerful castle of Rudstein, this had originally been the house of the Di Venone. But an evil genius seemed to enter into it, and for two or three generations such ill luck attended the family that they decided to desert the ancestral home. It was unroofed and left the wind and weather, and the evil things that haunt the great forest. One tower was left standing only as a sort of landmark. In the meantime, the new castle had risen, and here the family installed themselves. Here, many of them paid the debt of nature, and here the last male representative was born. Here, 
in lonely grandeur, the widow mother lived, surrounded by a retinue of servants and retainers, and having for a companion her one sister, a much younger woman of great beauty and lively disposition. She was known as Lady Hilda, and it was said that she and her sister by no means always in accord. She protested against the gloomy surroundings in which the scion of the noble house was being brought up, and she urged the madam to keep more company and relieve the castle, if possible, of the air of brooding melancholy which seemed to envelop it. But madam had her own notions. She wanted to mold her son after her own fashion. She was afraid of exposing him to evil influences, she would not depart from the traditions of her race. One day, when Reginald was about six years of age, a traveler came to the castle and begged for hospitality. It had been a terrible day, wild and stormy and wet. The traveler was a mysterious-looking man who seemed to have traveled far on foot. He was weary, wet, and hungry. He was a foreigner and spoke but a little German. He was invited into the servant's great hall where food and drink were set before him, and as night approached, he was conducted to a chamber situated on top of the tower. That night, a very violent storm, which had been threatening all day, burst over the country and did enormous damage. The thunder was terrific, the lightning incessant, the rain descended in a deluge. During the time that the storm was at its height, a female servant, hoping to glance from her window, which commanded a full view of the tower where the traveler was lodged, feared that she saw him walking about on the flat roof of the tower and exposed to the full fury of the storm. She declared that he had more the appearance of a fiend than a man, that occasionally he broke into wild laughter and ever and anon raised his hands aloft, as if daring the heavens and defying the lightning. Frightened almost into a fit, yet fascinated, the woman watched him for some time, and at last saw him conversing with the arch-enemy of man himself. The following morning, the servant hurried to her mistress and told her this silly story. The outcome of ignorance, superstition, and fear. And she insisted that the traveler who had been entertained and lodged in the castle was an evil being, who held converse with the devil, and that unless he were put to death, some terrible calamity might result from his visit. The lady, who was only a degree or two less superstitious than the menial, was much impressed for she lived in a district where superstition was rife. People traveled very little in those days, and the credence was given to the wildest and most outrageous stories. While a belief in the power of certain persons to hold communications with Satan was very common, especially in the Black Forest district. Indeed, even at the present day, when railways and telegraphs encircle the globe, natives of some of the remote districts in the forest still cling to this belief and have all sorts of charms to protect themselves against the malignant influence of witches, warlocks, and forest demons. Madame de Venoni
had listened to the wild and weird story of the servant, summoned her majordomo, and bade him bring the stranger to her. This was done. To the mistress of the castle, he was ushered into her presence. He bowed low and reverentially. She regarded him with something like awe. For truly, he was a striking and remarkable man and calculated to unfavorably impress anyone who was suspicious. He had a dark and swarthy face. His eyes were intensely black and piercing. His hair like jet. Whence come you? demanded the lady imperiously. From Brynjash Prosha, answered the man proudly, and drawing himself up as if by gesture he would resent the manner in which she addressed him. And whither go you? To Russia. With what object? In search of knowledge. Madame was incensed by his proud air, and eyeing him suspiciously, said, Unless I am mistaken, you are a man of evil nature, and in communication with the enemies of the human race. The man laughed. <laughs> no, madame, he answered, unless the stars that shine so gloriously in the heavens above are enemies of the human race. For it is from the stars I derive my knowledge. This apparently mysterious answer appalled the lady. For she left no doubt now that the man was a fiend. And she was about to summon her attendants and have him expelled when her little son burst into the room, followed by his aunt. The child was laughing merrily and had come to show his mother some grotesque heads he had been drawing on a sheet of paper catching sight of the stranger, he was instantly silenced and clung to his aunt's skirts while the lady Hilda regarded the man with intense interest. Is that your son? he asked. No, answered lady Hilda. I am a single woman. He is the son of my sister. There, the lady de Venone. The man turned to the madam and speaking in a strange, faraway voice, as if inspired by some strange prophetic instinct, he said, The boy is the hope and prop of race. But have a care, have a care, for a curse is upon him. Take him from this gloomy dwelling. Show him the bright and fair scenes of the earth. Teach him charity and tolerance. Strengthen his body and broaden his mind, and watch his footsteps lest he stray. His life hangs by thread only. Madame was horrified. She no longer doubted that this audacious stranger was an evil thing whose death would be a benefit to all men. As she caught her son up in her arms, she screamed, and when her attendants rushed in, she ordered them to beat the stranger and set the dogs upon him. Folding his arms, he stood like a rock and gazed at her with scorn and defiance. But he was dragged from the apartment and roughly hurried down the great stairs to the courtyard, where a call was made to let the dogs loose. 
but at that instant the Lady Hilda appeared upon the scene and interposed to save the stranger from the fury and violence of the menials. She ordered them to release him, and when that was done, she bade him depart at once, saying, Your life, your safety depends upon the speed with which you leave this castle behind you. You have spoken well and truly, and your advice is the advice of a wise man. But ignorance and tradition are powerful factors. They are difficult to counteract. The man bent his knee, and taking Lady Hilda's hand, kissed it gracefully, saying, I thank you, Lady, and do not doubt that this generous act of yours will go unrewarded. I pray you let me have a word with you out of earshot of these human wolves who seem to be panting to rend me to pieces. Unmindful of the angry looks darted at her and the menacing attitude of the menials, she retired for a moment or two to a corner of the courtyard with the stranger, who, availing himself of the opportunity, said, Have you the courage to meet me alone in the forest, in order that I may give you some information? Yes. Good. Meet me then tonight at the tower of the ruins of Rudstein, as the moon rises. No harm shall befall you, but good will will come out of it. She pledged herself to meet him. Then she ordered the gates to be thrown open, and the man departed, followed by the jeers and taunts of the people. Lady Hilda turned furiously upon them and upbraided them for their cowardice in attacking a defenseless man. She was not a favorite with them, but she had power, and they were silenced. That night, as the moon was rising, Lady Hilda slipped out of the castle by a secret door and hastily made her way to the ruins of Rudstein, where the stranger was waiting for her. For two hours they talked together, and loving her nephew as she did, she anxiously inquired about his future. His hope lies in separating him from his mother, said the stranger. It may seem unnatural and cruel, but she is too strongly influenced by the traditions of her race to see the boy's welfare. Depends on every means being taken to save him from the curse of his ancestors. But how know you all this? she answered somewhat awed, yet recognizing the soundness of his advice. I read it in the stars, he answered mysteriously. They are wondrous books in which the past and the future of men can be read for those who have eyes to see. Many more questions were asked and answered, and Lady Hilda returned to the castle, deeply impressed by the strange man's manner. Again and again she visited him and his influence over her became all-powerful. Of course, these visits were secret ones, and she kept her own counsel. The stranger took up his abode in the tower, where there was no fear of his being disturbed, for people had a dread of the ruins, and they said they were haunted. Lady Hilda procured him books and other things that he said he wanted, and she kept him supplied with food and money. During the time that this was taking place, she was urging her sister to quit the castle, retire to the capital, and there bring up her son in the shadow of the court. But this mother strenuously refused to do so. 
while the ill feeling between her and her sister increased. At last, Lady Hilda disappeared, and with her, her nephew. She was ultimately traced to Cologne after some months' absence, and she and the boy were brought back. Within a week of her return, she was found dead in her bed. She had been poisoned. The burial of a dead Divanoni was invariably an imposing sight, and there was no exception in Lady Hilda's case. None of the mummery and pomp and ceremony were admitted, and for three days the body lay in state in the great hall, and those who were entrusted with watching the corpse at night averred that one night, as the great bell of the castle was tolling the solemn midnight hours, a peculiar, dark-eyed man suddenly appeared was something so weird and strange in his appearance that they were dumbfounded with horror, and their horror was increased when they saw him lift the shrouded corpse from its coffin and press it to his breast and kiss it and lavish upon it all the manifestations of extreme love and affection. At last, he replaced the body and disappeared as mysteriously as he came. This wonderful story soon spread from lip to lip with additions and exaggerations, and great was the consternation when, as the unhappy lady was being borne to the burial vault of the Di Venone in the neighboring church, the remarkable stranger was recognized amongst the crowd. He seemed bowed in sorrow, but when an attempt was made to seize him, he avoided it, and as everyone declared, made himself invisible. Years passed away. Reginald D. Venone grew into manhood. He'd become a self-willed, passionate, gloomy man who avoided his mother, now an old and decrepit woman, and made no secret of the fact that he disliked her. For a long time, he had abandoned himself to the pleasures of the chase and tried to give some color and tone to his gloomy and monotonous life by a riotous living. One evening, he had been out hunting, and having got separated from his followers, he was returning alone when, on reaching the ruins of Rudstein, his horse shied, and Reginald beheld a weird-looking old man standing amidst the ruins. His hair was white, and he had a long gray beard. Who are you? demanded Reginald boldly, for he was courageous and daring to recklessness at times. One who has watched you from childhood and would speak to you into your your words of wisdom. Make your horse fast to that tree and follow me. Curiosity no less than some spell which he seemed incapable of resisting, prompted him to do the bidding of the stranger, which led the way up to the moldering stairs of the tower. On arriving at the top, he threw open a door and revealed an apartment, the floor of which was strewn with books written in strange characters. In one corner stood a large vase engraved with the signs of the zodiac and encircled by mysterious letters. A huge telescope was placed in the center of the room and pointed through a small aperture in the ceiling. As the old man entered, he took up an ebony wand from a table near and with it drew circles in the air. Then, turning to Reginald, said solemnly and in a warning voice, 
man of ill-starred fortune. You were born under an unlucky planet, and your future is involved in darkness. But for the sake of her whom I loved, your aunt, the Lady Hilda, I would save you from your doom. Reginald laughed somewhat scornfully. Although he was not without superstition, he placed little faith in the wild stories which he had heard from his childhood. And he was in the habit of saying that there was little that he was called supernatural that could not be explained by natural laws. <laughs> now I remember you, he exclaimed. Years ago, when I was a child, you came to my mother's castle. You frightened me then, and strangely impressed me. And yet, why should that have been? asked the stranger. I was a simple student of the occult and was traveling the world in quest of knowledge. I had heard something of your family. I knew the curse that rested upon your house, and even then I would have tried to avert it. But your mother would have set her dogs upon me as she set her menials. To your aunt I owed my life, and my love for her grew. By my advice, she took you away to the capital. But that act cost her her life. For her sake, I would now save you. Since her death, I have made long journeys into different countries, but have always been drawn back here by some influence I could not resist. My days, nay, my hours are numbered. But before I join the sweet Lady Hilda, I would render you a service. Reginald was far from impressed and laughed again, saying, <laughs> It is kind of you, but suppose I decline your good offices. Indeed, I am capable of taking care of myself and my fortunes, and, frankly, do not desire any service at the hands of a half-witted impostor, as I believe you to be. For myself, I have no belief in either God or devil. Therefore, I am not likely to be frightened by anything you can tell me or anything you can do. The old man's face assumed a look of sorrow and distress, and speaking in a voice that betrayed his emotions, he said, Sad indeed it is that you should lack reverence, but have a care, have a care. I warn you against infidelity and against those sins which, if indulged, will bring to you ruin. Listen, I say, and take heed. The star of your destiny already wanes in the heavens, and the fortunes of the proud family of the Vinoni must decline with it. When the stars shine tonight, look to the west, and you will see a planet, distinguishable by its unusual brilliancy. Look to it, I say, and let your thoughts wander from it to the God who rules the universe. And to him put up your pair of repentance and cry for light and guidance. But should you see a dull red meteor shoot across the face of your star of nativity, it will be a sign that a deed of blood will be done, and you will perpetrate it. For a moment or two, Reginald was really impressed by the awe-inspiring tone and manner of the old man. But once more, he broke into scornful laughter and said, <laughs> If this is all you have brought me here for, 
You do but waste my time, and I will depart. Go, answered the old man. You pronounce your doom. But let me exact a promise from you. On the night of the third day from now, return to this apartment. And, if you find me dead, give my body Christian burial. Yes, you shall have burial, as one of my dogs should, replied Reginald. But since you are an unwelcome tenant in this ruined tower, which is part of my property, I shall give you instructions and have you driven away. However, as you confess to having liked my aunt, whom I loved better than I loved my mother, I will see that you do not want. You shall be furnished with means sufficiently ample to enable you to live where your inclinations prompt. Only, you must quit the tower. This is my living place, as it is to be my death place, exclaimed the old man, and again, I charge you, return in three days, or fail at your peril. Reginald was exasperated. His temper was roused now, and he thought the old man was defying him, and he strode hastily from the room, hurried down the stairs, and flinging himself on his horse, galloped to the castle with the intentions of getting orders to eject the strange old man from the tower at once. But by the time he reached the courtyard, he had changed his mind and could not help confessing to himself that some indefinable sense of fear restrained him. At any rate, he would let the old fellow remain where he was for a few days longer. Three days passed away, and the night came. Then Reginald remembered the man's request. At first, he had no intention of returning to the ruins. As the evening wore on, however, he felt impelled by a feeling of overmastering curiosity to pay another visit to the wizard, if wizard he was. So, without making known his intention to anyone, he armed himself with a formidable spear used in boar hunting. And calling his faithful boarhound, Wonga, to his side, he set off for the tower. The night was beautifully fine. The air was still. The sky was cloudless. The stars shone with extraordinary brilliancy. As Reginald pursued his way, he looked to the west and saw an unusually bright star and knew, according to the man, that it was the star of his nativity. He reached the ruins in about a half an hour's rapid walking. A weird silence seemed to pervade the place. No light was visible. There wasn't a sign of the old man's existence. Reginald told Wonga to proceed up the moldering stairs. But the great hound whined and drew back and crouched at his master's feet and remained unmoved even by the vigorous kick which his master gave him. So, with a muttered oath, Reginald mounted the stairs alone. He pushed open the door and peered in. The window of the chamber was screened by a curtain on it, and on a shelf burned a small lamp. At the table sat the old man. He was dressed in a suit of black velvet embroidered with gold while round his waist was a massive belt of silver 
He wore a skull cap on his head. To his thin white hand, he grasped the ebony rod, while the index finger of the right hand was fixed on a passage in an open book that lay on the table before him. Reginald spoke to him. There was no answer. No movement. For the first time, he felt a sense of fear. He spoke again. But still, no answer. He advanced a few steps into the room. Do you not see I am here? He exclaimed. The old man rose up. Not as a living being, but like a mechanical figure. The face was the face of a corpse. The eyes were dull and glazed. But for an instant they lighted up the sky and turned upon the speaker. The light faded immediately, and without a sound, the old man sank to the floor, dead. The situation was so weird, so ghastly, so dramatic, that Reginald's fears were now fully aroused, and with a suppressed moan of horror, he turned and fled. The dog was still crouching at the foot of the stairs, but rose with a cry of joy as his master appeared. As Reginald left the ruins, he glanced at the west. His star of nativity was burning brilliantly. But suddenly, a dull red meteor shot across it. And then, remembering the old man's prophecy, he was so overcome that he dropped senseless to the ground in a faint. In a few minutes, finding that something was wrong, the faithful hound rushed back to the castle and by his howling and barking attracted attention. When the servants hurried to the great gateway, he indicated that something was wrong, so torches were procured and the dog was followed to where his master still lay insensible on the ground. He was raised up and carried back, but when he came to his senses, he was in a raging fever. He frequently became delirious and in the hour of his lunacy was accustomed to talk of an evil spirit that had visited him in his slumbers. His mother was shocked at such evident symptoms of derangement. She remembered the fate of her husband and implored Reginald as the last descendant of a great house to recruit his health and raise his spirits by travel. Only with great difficulty was he induced to quit the home of his infancy. The exploitations of his mother, however, last prevailed, and he left the castle for the sunny land of Italy. Months passed, and a constant succession of novelty had produced so beneficial an effect that scarcely any traces remained of the mysterious malady which had so suddenly overtaken him. Occasionally, however, his mind was disturbed and gloomy, and a perpetual recurrence of amusement diverted the influence of past recollection and rendered him at least as tranquil as it was in the power of his nature to permit. He continued for years abroad, during which time he wrote frequently to his mother, who still continued at the castle, and at last announced his intention of settling at Venice. He had remained but a few months in the city when, at a gay period of the carnival, he was introduced, as a foreign nobleman, to the beautiful daughter of the Doge. She was amiable, 
accomplished and endowed with every requisite to ensure permanent felicity. Reginald was charmed with her beauty and infatuated with the excelling qualities of her mind. After a time, he confessed his attachment and was informed with a blush that the affection was mutual. Nothing, therefore, remained but application to the doge, who was instantly addressed on the subject and implored to consummate the felicities of the young couple. The request was attended with success, and the happiness of the lovers was complete. On the day fixed for the wedding, a brilliant assemblage of beauty thronged the ducal palace of St. Mark. All Venice crowded to the festival, and in the presence of the gayest noblemen of Italy, Reginald, Count de Volney, received the hand of Marciella, the envied daughter of the Doge. In the evening, a masked festival was given in the palace, but the young couple, anxious to be alone, escaped from the scene of revelry and hurried in a gondola to the old palace that had prepared for their reception on the Grand Canal. It was a fine moonlit night. The stars were reflected in the silver bosom of the Adriatic. The sounds of music and sweet voices singing, mellowed and softened by distance, were wafted to them on the gentle breeze. Venice seemed to glitter with tens of thousands of lamps, and the gondoliers they passed and repassed uttered their peculiar cries. The young couple felt supremely happy, and they directed their boatmen to propel the boat leisurely along, that they might enjoy the enrapturing beauty of the scene. For Venice, the sea-set jewel, had never looked more beautiful, and the languid air of the summer night begot a delicious sense of dreaminess and a forgetfulness of the pain and misery of the world. As Reginald lay back with his head pillowed in the lap of his bride, he happened to turn his eyes to the west, and there beheld his star of nativity as brilliant as ever. Instantly, his mind reverted to that awful night when the old wizard died, and he remembered the dull red meteor and the weird prophecy. He became so agitated that his wife was alarmed and inquired the reason of it. But he only laughed and said it was merely a passing memory that disturbed him. And soon her kisses and caresses restored him to serenity. The succeeding six months were uninterrupted by a single untoward incident. He passionately loved Marciella and was beloved in return. His rough, uncouth nature had been soothed down and refined by his wife and the society in which he moved. He felt supremely happy, and though at times a remembrance of the awful night in the ruins of Rudstein disturbed him, he managed to shake off the influence and find a soothing balm in the caress of his young bride. One day, however, there came to him an urgent message to repair to his birthplace without delay as his mother lay at the point of death. Although he had never borne her any very strong affection, he felt it was his duty to obey the summons, and so, in company with his wife, he journeyed with all speed to the Black Forest. On reaching the castle, he found that his mother was already in the throes of death and delirious. As soon as he entered her presence, she rose up in her bed, 
without seeming to recognize him and cursed him for being an unnatural and unfilial son. It was an awful scene and affected Reginald in an appalling manner. Without recanting a word or indeed noticing him in any way, she fell back on her pillow and expired. For some days, Reginald was prostrated, and when his gentle and loving wife tried to soothe and comfort him, he repulsed her furiously until she was broken-hearted. But when he recovered his senses, he lavished caresses upon her and gave every manifestation that he loved her devotedly. A few days later, however, he was wandering with Marcella through a picturesque and beautiful part of the forest when they seated themselves on a bank overlooking a stream. For some little time, Reginald remained absorbed in thought. Then he began to pick up handfuls of earth and scatter them in the water. And with a wild glare in his eyes, he mumbled, This hateful world, all its dust and vanity. Nothing brings joy or contentment or peace. I am the last of my race. Why seek longer a support to rotten fabric? My kindred have squandered their substance, destroyed the vitality of the family. Let us follow my mother through the gates of death. Come, give me your hand, Marciella, and we will die together. His wife was horribly alarmed, and she used every endeavor to soothe him. Presently, he grew calmer and rose and allowed her to lead him away. They continued to wander further afield at his request, until night closed and the stars were burning. Brilliant above all the rest shone the fetal western planet, the star of Reginald's nativity. He gazed at it for some time with horror and pointed it out to the notice of Marciella. The hand of heaven is in it, he mentally exclaimed, and the proud of fortunes of Venoni hastened to a close. At this instant, the ruined tower of Rudstein appeared in sight, with the moon shining fully upon it. It is the place, resumed the maniac, where a deed of blood must be done, and I am fated to perpetuate it. But fear not, my poor girl, he added in a milder tone while the tears sprang to his eyes. Your husband cannot harm you. He may be wretched, but he shall never be guilty. Although Marciella was dreadfully alarmed, she concealed her feelings as much as possible and induced him to hurry back. When he reached the castle, he looked ghastly ill, and going to bed, sank into a sort of coma. Night waned. Morning dawned on the upland hills of the scenery, and with it came a renewal of Reginald's disorder. The day was stormy and in unison with the troubled feelings of his mind. He rose with the dawn, and without a word to anyone, went off into the forest, nor did he return until the evening. Distressed beyond measure at his absence, she waited in dread suspense for his return, and sat at her casement gazing across the vast expanse of the forest which the westering sun was now flooding with a crimson light. Suddenly her door flew open and Reginald made his appearance. 
His eyes were red and seemed to blaze with the light of madness, while his whole frame convulsed as if he suffered from agonizing spasms of pain. It was not a dream, he exclaimed. I have seen her, and she has beckoned us to follow. Seen who? Seen who? asked Marciella, alarmed at his frenzy. My mother, replied the maniac. Listen while I tell you a strange story. I thought as I was wandering in the forest, a sylph of heaven approached and revealed the countenance of my mother. I flew to join her, but was withheld by a wizard who pointed to the western star. On sudden loud shrieks were heard, and the sylph assumed the guise of a demon. Her figure toward an awful height, and she pointed in scornful derision to you. Yes, to you, my wife. With rage she drew you towards me. I seized, I murdered you, and strange cries and groans filled the air. I heard the voice of the fiendish astrologer shouting as from a charnel house. Your destiny is accomplished, and the victim may retire with honor. Then I thought the fair front of heaven was obscured, and thick gouts of clotted, clammy blood showered down in torrents from blackened clouds of the west. The star shot through the air, and the phantom of my mother again beckoned me to follow. The maniac ceased and rushed in agony from the apartment. Marciella followed and discovered him, leaning in a trance against the wainscot of the library. With gentlest motion, she drew his hand in hers and led him into the open air. They rambled on, heedless of the gathering storm, until they discovered themselves at the base of the Tower of Rudstein. Suddenly, the maniac paused. A horrid thought seemed flashing across his brain as with giant grasps he seized Marciella in his arms and bore her to the fatal apartment. In vain she shrieked for help, for pity. Dear Reginald, it is Marciella who speaks. You cannot surely harm her. He heard. He heeded not. For once stayed his steps, still he reached the room of death. On a suddenness, his countenance lost its wildness and assumed a more fearful but composed look of determined madness. He advanced to the window, dragged away the rotting curtains, and gazed on the stormy face of heaven. Dark clouds flitted across the horizon and thunder echoed in the distance. To the west, the fatal star was still visible, but shone with a sickly luster. At this instant, a flash of lightning illumined the whole apartment and threw a broad red glare upon a skeleton that moldered upon the floor. Reginald observed it with a fright and remembered the unburied astrologer. He advanced to Marciella and pointed to the rising moon. A dark cloud is sailing by, he shudderingly exclaimed. But ere the full moon rising... The giant orb shines forth. You shall die. I will accompany you in death, and hand in hand we will pass into the presence of our people. The poor girl shrieked for pity, 
but her voice was lost in the angry ravings of the storm. The cloud in the meantime sailed on. It approached. The moon was dimmed, darkened, and finally buried in its gloom. The maniac marked the hour and rushed with a fearful cry towards his victim. With murderous resolution, he grasped her throat while the helpless hand and half-strangled articulation implored his compassion. After one final struggle, the hollow death rattle announced that life was extinct and that the murderer held a corpse in his arms. An interval of reason now occurred, and on the partial restoration of his mind, Reginald discovered himself the unconscious murderer of Marciella. Madness. Deepest madness again took possession of his faculties. He laughed. He shouted aloud with the unearthly yellings of a fiend. And in the raging violence of his delirium, he rushed out, climbed to the summit of the tower, and hurled himself headlong from it. In the morning, the bodies of the young couple were discovered and buried in the same tomb. The fatal ruin of Rudstein still exists, but is now commonly avoided as the residence of spirits of the departed. Day by day it slowly crumbles to earth and affords a shelter for the night raven or the wild things of the forest. Superstition has consecrated itself to her and the tradition of the country has invested it with all the awful appendages of a charnel house. The wanderer who passes at nightfall shudders while he surveys its utter desolation and exclaims as he travels on, Surely this is a spot where guilt may thrive in safety, or bigotry weave a spell to enthrall her misguided votaries. Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts, or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show and would like to support the podcast, visit my Patreon where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.